Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you've been too busy trying to keep track of vote counts for Biden in small counties in rural Arizona you've never heard of? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting, folks, the podcast that updates you on the top practice-changing articles in medicine. We're back with our roundup of the month of October 2020. On reflection, this was probably the worst Halloween we've had in a while. Trick-or-treating on Zoom, ordering sweets from Jeff Bezos, and dressing up in your sexy witch's outfit, and if your wife to tell you that all Halloween parties have been cancelled and you look ridiculous. It hasn't been great. So you'd be excused if while mourning the loss of Halloween fun, you missed the last month's top practice-changing articles. Here to help you keep your hand in the sweet jar of evidence-based medicine is our team of journal spotters. Guys, want to introduce yourselves and let us know what you're up to before we all got locked down in our homes again. Thanks, John. Yeah, it feels good to be back. I'm Dr. Katia Florman, still living the high life of an internal medicine trainee and also realizing that I should maybe just stop taking annual leave altogether. It seems every time I do, it triggers a lockdown. So yes, to answer your question... I was trying and failing to go surfing in Cornwall uh, just before we all got locked up again. And I'm Dr. Alvin Shrester. And on the final day before lockdown, I was savouring a final pint of Peroni in a lovely beer garden and managed to squeeze in a haircut because from before, I've learnt my lesson. That's so sensible. (laughs) (laughs) The opposite of what I was doing. And I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and I'm missing my co-host Barney, who has a very exciting reason not to be joining us. We want to c- congratulate Barney and Cammy. Journal Spotting is a family affair, on their new baby girl. We wish you all the best. Journal Sp- <laughs> the Journal Spotting team miss you, and we're thrilled for the bright podcasting future Emily has ahead of her. Right, so Katia, want to run us through what we're going to cover this week? This episode is a real pick and mix of clinical pearls. We are going to update you on new drugs and guidelines in diabetic CKD. We've got a bit of cardiology for you, nighttime blood pressure, subcut ICDs, beta blockers in cirrhosis and iron in heart failure. And then we're going to cover this podcast's favorite salt disorder. Yep, hyponatremia. And that will be followed by some interesting papers on intermittent fasting and cerebral microbleeds. And as always, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter at journalspotting.com journalspotting at gmail.com. And if you like the show, let us know with a cheeky review. Okay, so Alvin, you're going to kick us off. It seems like the world of CKD and diabetes is having a good few years. It seems so. So if I said to you the words type 2 diabetes, reduction in kidney disease progression, and reduction in cardiovascular events, I'm sure most of our listeners will now be rolling their eyes thinking, oh no, not another SGLT2 inhibitor paper. Fortunately, it's not. In fact, it seems an old friend, the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist class, is making a bit of a comeback. So I present to you effective phenerenone on chronic kidney disease outcomes in type 2 diabetes in New England Journal of Medicine in October. Oh, Alvin, we'd literally just got our heads around how to pronounce empagliflozin, and then another new drug comes along. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I had to practice this one a few times myself. <laughs> so uh, this was a randomized placebo-controlled phase three trial with over 5,700 patients. The primary outcome, which was a composite of kidney failure, 
sustained drop in EGFR of more than 40% or death from renal cause was statistically significantly lower in the phenerenone group than placebo. And that was with a hazard ratio of 0.82. Great. And I've got even more. So the secondary outcome of major adverse cardiovascular events was also lower with a hazard ratio of 0.86. So that all sounds very good. But any drawbacks? Well, as you might expect, there were high rates of hyperkalemia in the uh, treatment group. And this was twice as frequent and statistically significant. If you look into the supplementary appendix, you'd also see that participants in the phenerenone group ended up on a potassium binders more frequently than placebo. Okay, so a few drawbacks, but overall another positive renal trial. These nephrologists are just getting spoiled for choice, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Now, if that wasn't enough, I've got even more diabetic nephrology for, for us. And that's in the form of 2020 KDIGO Diabetes Management in CKD, a guideline that was released last month. So this guideline is a 100-page beast. So I must confess, I didn't quite read all of it, but my God, it was close. The things I do for this podcast... Mate, you've got nothing else to do. <laughs> you've had your pint of Peroni, you've had your haircut. Sit down True. and read some guidelines. So without further ado... Here's some of my practical take-home messages. So number one, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system blockade or RAS blockade with an ACE inhibitor or ARB is still in and in a big way. They really emphasize the importance of these timeless classics. We love the ACE and ARB on journal spotting. Did the um, guidelines give any particular choice and difference in type 1 or type 2 diabetes? No, no preference is given. Either ACE inhibitor or ARB is fine in both type 1 and type 2. And it's basically for anyone that has a sniff of hypertension or any proteinuria. My second point is that a serum creatinine rise should not be a deterrent in continuing ACE inhibitors or ARBs. They suggest tolerating a rise by 30%. And if this happens, there's no need to reduce the dose or heaven forbid, stop it. Yeah, you presented a nice trial from that a few months ago on how important these drugs are in CKD and stopping them was pretty bad news. I'm starting to think, Alvin, that I think your favorite drug is either an ACE or an ARB. Is that fair to say? Uh, uh, it's probably, you know, top five, top five. Top five. Uh, so I, that, I is either... a, that is a separate, quite rubbish podcast episode. Yeah, Alvin's <laughs> top five favorite drugs. Being a geriatrician, I either start them or stop them. It's like 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> well actually that that is a question i wanted to ask so what uh, do they give any information on what we do if the creatinine actually goes up above 30 percent that yeah, kind of good question goes? yeah so what they do is they um they recommend that we look at immediately reversible causes um such as hypovolemia overdiuresis NSAID use and maybe renal artery stenosis but again, they recommend continuing the ACE inhibitor or ARB after those potential causes have been addressed. Oh, so and just follow- hold your nerve and keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just sit tight. So, and on a very similar note to that, uh, my third point is that hyperkalemia should not deter ACE inhibitor or ARB use. And they specifically suggest managing the hyperkalemia in the first instance over reducing the dose. Okay. And how might we manage that then? So they recommend reviewing the diet, uh, starting some of the fancier new drugs like sodium zirconium. And of course, the renal registrar's all-time favorite, sodium bicarb in acidosis. Following on from that, 
point four is that whilst we should cherish our, you know, RAS blockade, don't overdo it. Pick one of ACE inhibitor or ARB, but don't give both. Yeah, fair. Final point, metformin, believe it or not, is still recommended first line. But as you might have guessed, alongside the new kids on the block, the SGLT2 inhibitors. So yeah, metformin is still up there because it's it's been around for a million years. It's cheap, low risk of hypos, and it's a very good anti-hypoglycemic. Yeah, and you lose weight. Maybe. Did they give any, did they talk about the SGLT2 inhibitors? Did they give any like practical points? I, I, just as a caveat, I do sometimes worry that this podcast sounds like it's sponsored by like Impagliflozin. I, I just need to clarify to listeners that we are not receiving funds from any makers of SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, it's just yeah, that they're if, quite if big only, at the moment. If only we were. <laughs> yeah, if only. <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, practical points about SGLT2 inhibitors. So similar to ACE inhibitors and ARBs, they suggest tolerating a bump in the creatinine. Um, and avoiding dose reduction or, you know, avoid stopping the drug if that does happen. And they also say that if the EGFR drops to below 30, it can still be continued. I'm just looking at your track record on this podcast, Alvin, and you'd be mistaken for thinking you're a nephrology registrar. Are you retraining or what's, what's going on? <laughs> well, interestingly, uh, for a short period, I was once a renal reg, so it must just be a a bad hangover from that that I can't quite shake off, I guess. It's not the worst hangover. Uh, that's really good. So, I mean, thanks so much for doing the hard yards on those guidelines. Really appreciate it. Katya, I think you've spotted some interesting blood pressure research for our listeners coming out of Japan. What's, um, what's the update? Yeah, thanks, John. So I've got a question for you guys. If I mention a dipper, what comes to mind? Dipper, uh, so it's obviously got to be one of my trademark 30-yard dipping volleys into the top corner on a <laughs> pitch. Gosh, of course. I'm sorry that didn't <laughs> immediately spring to my mind. Chicken dippers! No? Ali G, anyone? No? Yeah, I'm, I'm with <laughs> you. I thought about it. I wasn't sure if I was going to put that on. But Link in the show notes for the sure. international listeners. <laughs> Anyway, you're all sort of close, but also miles off what I'm going to talk about. In this study involving ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, dippers are actually those whose blood pressure dips at night as per your circadian rhythm. And they also talk about risers, and they, they are people whose blood pressure rises at night compared to in the day. Uh, just to check, Katia, which one's the natural one? Are we supposed to have a drop at night in our blood pressure? Yes, very much so. Anyway, this study, published in Circulation this month, recruited over 6,000 patients across Japan with at least one cardiovascular risk factor. They then measured their blood pressure over at least 24 hours with a uniform halter monitor and found out their sleep-wake cycle. Patients were characterized into dippers and risers and nighttime systolic blood pressures were noted. The researchers then tracked their incidence of adverse cardiovascular events over a mean of 4.5 years. They concluded that an isolated high nighttime systolic BP increases your risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and a riser pattern, i.e. nighttime blood pressure increased compared to your daytime blood pressure, increases your risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and heart failure. 
So that the riser pattern is bad news is already a proven phenomenon. And this disruption of the circadian rhythm has previously been associated with end organ damage and poor cardiovascular prognosis. For me, the more interesting take home is that a higher nighttime BP was associated with poor CV outcomes in patients who otherwise had an adequate daytime systolic blood pressure. And that's why antihypertensive strategies should target systolic nighttime BP. So bring back the Holter monitor and just don't worry too much about the chicken dippers. <laughs> I think this is so fascinating. So it's basically saying, don't be fooled by, you know, normal clinic daytime blood pressure and that actually nighttime hypertension is bad news. So we might have to rethink our management strategy in all of this. It's actually quite striking. And it's sort of entering the realms of that elusive future everyone talks about where we have personalized medicine and you've got to ask yourself is your patient a riser or a dipper cool study and great follow-up window of four and a half years my journal spots next also looks at blood pressure changes but in a slightly sicker different cohort this paper published in the journal of hepatology combines two things that i find very challenging cirrhosis and pharmacology Current guidelines, as most of us know, suggest that a non-selective beta blocker should be used to reduce the risk of varicel bleeding in patients with cirrhosis. Now, cast your mind back to those medical school lectures you sat through nursing a hangover, not the one you're having from your nephrology days, Alvin, <laughs> proper one. Uh, this effect is due to beta-2 receptor inhibition, which leads to unopposed alpha-adrenergic action that constricts the splanchnic vessels and decreases portal blood flow. This then reduces your risk of your varices bleeding. But non-selective beta blockers, by their very name, also inhibit beta-1 receptors that decrease cardiac output. We also know that patients with decompensated cirrhosis have significant hemodynamic and circulatory dysfunction and are quite sensitive to disruptions in effective cardiac output, such as the kind that might be caused by a beta blocker. John, uh, my head hurts. Are you done with the pharmacology? <laughs> Oh, sorry, Alvin, we're not talking about potassium anymore. <laughs> yes, you can all wake up now for the paper. The aim of this study was to determine if, in fact, the systemic hemodynamic effects of beta blockers in patients with cirrhosis were doing more harm than good. It's a cohort study comprising cirrhotic patients that were either compensated or decompensated, just as a reminder, that's ascites, encephalopathy, or jaundice. And they did hemodynamic studies at baseline one month, three months after starting a non-selective beta blocker. There's quite a lot to unpack from the paper as they did a number of hemodynamic measurements, and I'm not going to go into all of them. But the headline is that patients with decompensated cirrhosis when taking a non-selective beta blocker had a greater reduction in cardiac output relative to compensated patients, and at the same time had a lower reduction in portal hypertension. So decompensated cirrhotic patients are getting less benefit from beta blockers and are potentially at higher risk of harm because of them. In addition, the greatest reductions in cardiac output caused by these non-selective beta blockers were actually seen in patients that ended up dying. Mm, so it's suggesting maybe that non-selective beta blockers in patients with decompensated cirrhosis could be bad news. Yeah, and I think it's saying we need to be cautious about non-selective beta blockers in this patient cohort, as they might be doing more harm than good due to their effects on the circulation. This study should prompt us to think about the patient in front of us and not just apply guidelines blindly. 
The paper is not saying decompensated patients shouldn't have non-selective beta blockers, but that the decision should be thought about carefully and taking a more holistic approach. That's really sound advice, John. I'm going to follow on with a few October articles about everyone's favorite metal and oxygen transporter, iron. Firstly, are you guys five-a-day men? Do you swear by vitamin C supplementation? I'm just going to jump in and say that every time I see a Jimmy Anderson on the tube advertising Vita Biotics, I think it makes me think I should take dietary supplements, but I'm no, not really into it. Only if I become a fast bowler, maybe. <laughs> sure. Thank you for that. So this paper was actually looking at whether you need to have vitamin C supplementation when you are taking iron replacement, because there's that theory that the vitamin C helps you to absorb the iron supplements. I've definitely been caught out from this before, and I don't think we regularly see, you know, vitamin C prescribed on a drug chart, but sometimes your pharmacist might mention it or your friend who's reading a health blog will mention it. And then you'll suddenly think, oh gosh, I've just prescribed the whole ward iron and they're all still eating biscuits instead of oranges. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard this before, but it does seem like it's a thing. People give vitamin C with iron to try and increase its absorption. Yeah. It's a thing. Wow. It's on quite a lot of guidelines. Mm. Huh. I'm looking into it. But anyway, you've, you've come to the right place, John, because this RCT in JAMA from October has, is hoping to settle this debate once and for all. So they randomized 440 patients with iron deficiency anemia to iron supplementation alone or iron and vitamin C. The primary endpoint was an increase in hemoglobin after two weeks of treatment and there was actually no difference seen between the two arms as both of them showed an improvement of approximately two grams per deciliter. In terms of the secondary endpoint, there was also an equivalent increase in ferritin in both groups at eight-week follow-up. Alas, finally, you can rest easy, save the hospital a few quid, and continue with iron supplements alone. Unless, actually, yours has moved on to the trend of IV iron instead, in which case just open the checkbook. God, it's not been a good year for vitamin C. No raw and septic shock, as discussed on our last episode. And now it doesn't help with iron. Exactly. Yeah, everyone's still spending so much money on Barocca. One day it will go out of fashion. Anyway, on the subject of iron, I've also got a quick systematic review in the BMJ's postgraduate medical journal that caught my eye this month. It has a quite long title, which says exactly what it says on the tin. It was Efficacy and Safety of Iron Therapy in Patients with Chronic Heart Failure and Iron Deficiency, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis based on 15 RCTs. So all of these compared iron therapy with placebo in patients with chronic heart failure and iron deficiency. And in some patient groups, they had anemia and in some patient groups, they just had iron deficiency that was not causing anemia. Looking at a multitude of cardiovascular outcomes, they found that iron therapy reduced the risk of cardiovascular hospitalization in patients with iron deficiency and chronic heart failure, regardless of the presence of anemia. Iron therapy also significantly improved cardiac function, which they measured by reduction in New York Heart Association class and increase in left ventricular ejection fraction. Iron therapy also increased exercise capacity in the six meter walk test distance and quality of life. There was no effect on all-cause death or cardiovascular death, but also, crucially, there was no increase in adverse events. Great. So make sure we're topping up iron stores in heart failure patients. Doing the basics well, it seems, makes a real difference. Exactly. I'm going to keep things cardiology and ask you guys if you've come across a subcutaneous ICD. Uh, I haven't, but to be honest, I'm not surprised that 
there's yet another new device in the world of interventional cardiology. <laughs> <laughs> so cynical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also haven't, but maybe I was more surprised and more innocent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you guys just didn't see them actually because uh, they're not as obvious. So in normal ICDs, the box sits subcutaneously, but the leads pass into the vasculature through the veins and then the leads sit in the right atrium and the right ventricle. So you might ask, why do we need subcutaneous ICDs? Well, this specifically addresses where the leads are. It won't shock you to know that the large ICD leads sit in pretty hostile intravascular environments. They bend and twist and can crack and break from everyday movements. This can lead to the ICD either not firing or inappropriately firing, two things which obviously you don't want to happen if you've got an ICD. Mm, the bit that you know said the ICD not firing, that kind of seems to be a bit of a big problem there. Yeah, of the two, that's probably the worst one. Uh, <laughs> onto the subcutaneous <laughs> ICD, it's a technological advance to try and eliminate these complications of a transvenous ICD and improve the care of these patients. It's a subcutaneous can, which is implanted in the left auxiliary position. And then you get a tunneled subcut lead. The lead is not exposed to the repetitive contractions of the cardiac cycle, nor the hostile environment of the vasculature, unlike those which we just talked about, the transvenous leads. This is the untouched trial, which aims to assess the safety and effectiveness of the subcut ICD in prevention of sudden cardiac death from ventricular tachyarrhythmia. They took about 1,000 patients with ejection fractions of less than 35%, and no pacing indications, and implanted a subcut ICD and then followed them up for 18 months. The basic question here is, do these things work and are they safe in patients with heart failure? The primary endpoint was 18-month freedom from inappropriate shock, which was 95.9%, a very good score. Conversion success rate for appropriate discrete episodes or shocks was 98.4%, also a good score. And then complication-free rate at 18 months was 92.7%. So the data suggests high efficacy and safety of the subcut ICD device in this patient cohort, which had higher comorbidities and a lower ejection fraction than previous trials with these devices. The data suggests that in many ways, these devices actually perform better than transvenous ICDs. That all sounds very promising. Were there any downsides? Yeah, so uh, they can't actually do something called anti-tachy pacing, which is a way to kind of pace someone out of VT, which can be quite useful. Um, but other than that, I think in particular that what they are really useful for is actually for patients with poor vascular access or patients of a younger age who might need an ICD for longer. The take-home message is that these devices appear safe and effective. So when you're doing your paces exam via Zoom next, make sure you check the auxiliary region for the ICD. They're hopefully going to come into practice more and more. There we go. Maybe you just haven't spotted it, guys. Yeah, that sounds mm. like actually quite hard to find. <laughs> it's not. Okay. <laughs> if you Google it, they're quite, they're quite obvious. Alvin. Another nephrology paper, maybe? You can start your own nephrology podcast if you like. Spin-off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, actually, next, I'm going to talk about salsa. No, not the spicy sauce. And no, not the sensual Latino dance. But instead, the randomized control trial from South Korea, obviously. Less sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so this is risk of overcorrection in rapid intermittent bolus versus slow continuous infusion therapies of hypertonic saline for patients with symptomatic hyponatremia. So I literally spent ages trying to find out why this was called the salsa trial. Guys, what am I missing? Yeah, I can't really think. Something about 
salivation <laughs> lacking yeah. salt but anyway it's definitely in the running for trial name of the year i do love a good trial name right anyway so hyponatremia is incredibly common and when severe enough it can be life-threatening Overcorrection can result in central pontine myelinosis which can be equally dangerous the european endocrine guidelines actually recommend small intermittent boluses but there's been little evidence comparing this to the usual continuous infusion. So this was an open-label randomized control trial in Korea of patients with moderate to severe symptoms of hyponatremia with a sodium level of 125 or lower. The severe symptoms included vomiting, seizures, and coma. And both treatment arms used 3% saline. The outcome measured was an overcorrection defined by a sodium rise of 12 millimoles per litre in the first 24 hours or 18 millimoles within 48 hours. And the results? Overcorrection occurred 19% in the intermittent bolus group versus 26% in the slow infusion group. But this was not statistically significant. There was also no difference in secondary outcomes looking at time to increase sodium by 5 millimoles or time taken to achieve a serum sodium of above 130. But what is important, I think, is that the continuous infusion arm required more relowering treatment. And what they mean by that is basically dextrose to bring down mm. the sodium a bit more when they thought it was being overcorrected. And that was statistically significant. So bearing that in mind, you could speculate that by allowing for relowering treatment, they may have masked potential dangers of the slow infusion arm. Mm, so the slow infusion actually leads to more overcorrection? Well, the politician's answer would be it led to more overcorrection treatment rather than overcorrection itself by their definition. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> was, it blind, was, it, was it blinded, Alvin? No, it wasn't blinded. Mm. And one final important point uh, that I should add is that this overcorrection treatment with dextrose actually doesn't feature in our European guidelines. So they did go a bit off piece there with that. No, I've seen that a few times. But checking sodiums does keep us in business, guys. So (laughs) let's not change that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay. Well, cool, Alvin. Thanks a lot. That That was super. Interesting little study. So, John, are you now going to tell us about your favorite diet routine? Katia, I thought you would never ask. (laughs) With Christmas around the corner and everyone stuck at home raiding the fridge every hour to check if some chocolate has appeared in it, there's a lot of concern for our patients' waistlines. Being overweight and obese is the risk factor that seems to cut across all our specialties and is having a huge impact on diseases affecting our patients. It doesn't need to be said, but cutting down weight can have a huge impact on health outcomes. But helping patients lose weight is not easy at all, as long-time adherence to lifestyle changes is super difficult. Many of you will have no doubt heard of, though, intermittent fasting. Uh, John, just remind us what that is again. Yeah, we'll do. So it's a weight loss method that some believe might be the holy grail. It basically involves eating in a set window of time separated by defined periods of fasting. There's a big New England Journal review that did the rounds on this earlier this year, which a lot of people sort of read and were like, well, maybe intermittent fasting is the next you know, new thing. But this article published in JAMA Internal Medicine is probably one of the largest and first RCTs performed on intermittent fasting. And they randomized 116 participants aged 18 to 64 with a BMI over 27 to either 
intermittent fasting. So if that's from eight at night to 12 o'clock the next day, they had to fast and then they could eat in the subsequent window of 12 p.m. till 8 p.m. The other group was consistent meal times. That's they had three scheduled meals a day and they used an app to kind of regulate and run the whole trial. The two groups were pretty well matched and they were followed up for 12 weeks. So both groups had a modest decrease in weight, 1.17 decrease in the intermittent fasting group and 0.75% in the control group. But there was no difference between the two groups. So both lost weight, but not no significant difference. In addition, there was no difference in the secondary like metabolic outcomes they looked for. So that's things like HbA1c or fasting glucose. Mm, but what if the intermittent group were just maybe just eating loads in their window, that window of great opportunity? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I think, are you referencing the Butterfield diet? Have you, have you ever seen that? <laughs> if yeah, not, get you're on gonna YouTube. Have to- you're going to have to yeah, put the link on the, uh, the notes. Yeah. So two pieces of homework listeners, uh, Butterfield diet and allergy in the house. Anyways. Uh, so there was no, you're right, Alvin, though, there was no reporting of diet, which could be a limitation, but the researchers said that they used a mathematical model to estimate changes in calorie intake and that these did not differ between the two groups. Apparently this model, which I don't really understand because I'm don't do sort of nutrition research. Apparently it's more accurate than self-reported energy intake Uh, I mean, that basically is demonstrating humans' inability to tell the truth about how many biscuits they ate. The answer is always add two. I'm just wondering, did did they, why did the group that just ate three meals a day lose weight? Do you think they all just ate less because they were being observed by the researchers? Yeah, that's right. So the the researchers basically say that that weight reduction is evidence that like if you're enrolled in a weight loss trial and are on a, I mean, they were still on a regime of three meals a day. They're, they're sort of still primed to lose weight. Mm. And the, the, the authors actually say like, it's evidence that even just putting someone into a weight loss trial, regardless of whether they're doing intermittent fasting or normal, you know, weight loss stuff, they're going, they're going to lose weight. Yeah, that, I've heard that as well, actually. It's called the Hawthorne effect. So if yeah. you're being observed, then you will change your behavior. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was actually discovered in a factory where they turned the lights up brighter and they thought that turning the lights up brighter made people work harder, like having the, in a factory, this was in like the thirties, having brighter lights made people work harder. And then the people, the like researchers left and people just started working slowly again, even though the lights were on. And they ah. That's where it comes from. Uh, anyways. Back to intermittent fasting. Uh, <laughs> so it does give a small amount of weight loss, but not more than a con- control group of people, as we just discussed. And on top of that, it doesn't really change any of the metabolic markers, which is what a lot of people were sort of highlighting that it could do. So as usual, the answer is weight loss is hard. It takes a long time and there's no magic fix. I'm sorry to put a downer on the intermittent fasting fad, guys. Apologies. Well, I wasn't sold, to be honest. Fair enough. But thanks. <laughs> thanks for the update. So we are nearing the end of our whirlwind tour of evidence-based medicine. And Katia, I think you've got one more trial that you want to share with us. Yes, I, I do. Quite a sort of different one to the old intermittent fasting. This is about cerebral microbleeds. So some of you may be more or less familiar with them and what they mean for stroke patients. They're found in up to 30% of patients with ischemic stroke on MRI. 
and they're thought to indicate the presence of quite bad small vessel disease, and they are thought to increase your risk of intracranial hemorrhage. But it's still a bit of a matter of debate and how they influence decisions around antithrombotic treatment in stroke care is also debated quite heavily. And this study sheds some light on that. This was a subgroup analysis of a double-blind RCT across 31 countries published in JAMA Neurology this month. This looked at people who suffered from embolic stroke of unknown source. So that is a stroke that's presumed to be from a cerebral embolism, but without identification of arterial stenosis, lacunae, or cardioembolic source. These patients were then randomized to receive secondary prevention of either rivaroxaban 15 milligrams a day or aspirin 100 milligrams a day. And they then followed them up for a median of 11 months. So 395 of the 3,700 participants, which was 11%, had cerebral microbleeds present on their baseline MRI. They found that the presence of these microbleeds increased the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage fourfold with a hazard ratio of 4.2 and also increased the risk of ischemic stroke of about 1.5 fold. These microbleeds also increased the risk of recurrent stroke and or cause mortality. And this was regardless of whether the patient was treated with aspirin or rivaroxaban. Of note, there was also a threefold increased risk of intracerebral hemorrhage for those treated with rivaroxaban, regardless of the presence of microbleeds. But these confidence intervals were very wide, so this is not really the main take-home point. For me, this study has told us that we do need to worry about cerebral microbleeds, but maybe we don't need to modify the choice of antithrombotic agent based on their presence. Nice. Um, Alvin, maybe as our journal spotting expert geriatrician, you have a few sort of pearls on these microbleeds? Yeah, so um, I kept seeing these being reported again in the MRI scans like you've described. And so I, I was chatting to one of our stroke consultants about this actually quite recently. And what um, the stroke guys think is that exactly as you said, these microbleeds are associated with an increased risk of ischemic stroke but also an increased risk of hemorrhage. So we're in a real catch-22, as you've kind of suggested, because there is still a, a risk of ischemic stroke, you kind of go with covering for treatment of that. Hmm. Awesome. So um, I think it's now coming to the end of the show and that time of the month where we bring you a slightly less relevant article. It's the relatively relevant, irrelevant article. And before I reveal the article, I just want to know, are you guys nappers? Do you enjoy the afternoon siesta? I, I just can't nap. It's a real issue. I'm so jealous of nappers. They always look so happy afterwards. <laughs> yeah, after this trial, you're going to be even more jealous. I know. <laughs> Alvin, are you a napper? What's, um... So napping happens just without any sort of conscious decision-making from me. It just happens. <laughs> so, yes, I am a napper. Slightly worrying for your day job. <laughs> So this is daytime nap restores hippocampal function and improves learning. What a headline. And no prizes for guessing the name of the journal it was published in. Sleep. <laughs> the researchers took 40 healthy adults and put them in an MRI scanner. And they asked them to encode word pair lists at 1 p.m. and then at 4.30 p.m. Between the two MRI sessions, they either stayed awake and watched documentary or they had a 90-minute nap. Pretty luxurious. 40 minutes after the encoding session, 
they had a memory test for the learned words, which was assessed. So the, the word coding um, sort of exercise is basically like pairing words together while they're in the MRI scanner. And then this memory test is they get shown one of the words again and they have to recall the paired word. So it's kind of like a test of memory and cognitive function. Now, what you all want to know, whose hippocampus is going to work better, Alvin's or Katia's? In the group that had a nap, they did better at encoding word pairs than the group that stayed awake and watched the documentary. The imaging that they did suggested increased hippocampal activation after the nap, suggesting that the function had been restored during the nap. Mm, I don't want to believe that, but fine. So what you're saying is if you want to boost your cognition and nap is the answer. Well, I'm kind of saying that, Katia, but I could also be saying that it's low numbers. It's just like MRI scanning. It's yeah, a badly run trial. MRI. Don't worry. You can no, no, no. say I think we should be promoting that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think the important thing to say is there's no shame in siestas. You know, get your head down in the afternoon to wake your hippocampus up. Alternatively, the other way of reading this is actually that documentary watching puts your hippocampus to sleep. Well, yeah, I'm wondering what documentaries they watch. Maybe they were <laughs> like really challenging, confusing. Yeah, that's true. They didn't actually say in the study, which is annoying. I did actually look to check mm-hmm. which one they watched. Anyway, so there we go, guys. That's a wrap for this month's roundup. I feel like we've really covered some ground. So I think we should hit the listeners with our take-home messages. So for Neronone, a third-generation mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist seems to be renoprotective, but beware of hyperkalemia. KDIGO guidelines say that RAS blockade is still key, and metformin is still first line, but now alongside newcomers, the SGLT2 inhibitors. In patients with severely symptomatic hyponatremia, rapid intermittent bolus of hypertonic saline is probably as safe and maybe even safer than the traditional continuous infusion in in avoiding overcorrection. Take her message number four is that Alvin is retraining as a renal registrar. (laughs) Katia, your turn. So... My take-homes are that nighttime blood pressure does increase your risk of adverse cardiovascular events, so just monitor that. Iron supplementation is great for heart failure, and you don't need to give vitamin C with it. And finally, microbleeds in the brain are just quite bad news, but there's not much difference with secondary prevention for embolic stroke if you use rivaroxaban or aspirin brilliant and my take-homes are be careful with non-selective beta blockers in decompensated cirrhosis look out for a subcutaneous icd in the left axillary position and intermittent fasting is maybe not all it's cracked up to be and finally get your head down and get that afternoon nap no doubt you're going to need it after this episode of journal spotting (laughs) thank you very much guys it's been super fun and we'll see you next month yeah thanks Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Florman, animations expert Costa, and promotion team Abby and Isabel. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.